basically what I hear you saying is listen to your mother, right? That's what he said. No. Always listen to <laughs> your mother. I did yeah, not quote, hear that, I'm quoting by the way. <laughs> this podcast represents the opinions of our hosts and guests. The content here should not be taken as medical advice and is for informational purposes only. This podcast also does not establish a standard of care, doctor-patient, or client relationship. No guarantee is given regarding the accuracy of any statements or opinions made on the podcast or website. And because each person is so unique, all listeners are encouraged to connect with counseling and medical professionals for assistance with their personal journey. All people, places, and scenarios mentioned in the podcast have been changed to protect the privacy of those involved. Welcome to We're Not Fine. I'm Dr. Talia Jackson. And I'm Doug Jensen. We thank you for listening every week to our deep and thought-provoking conversations about relationships. We're Not Fine family. I am so excited to introduce to you Dr. Agam Dewani, who is in New York City. He's an amazing psychiatrist, and he specializes in men's mental, mental health including and why you're here to talk to us today just this epidemic of loneliness and video game addiction and porn addiction and how like young men are sort of falling into the darkness in some ways and that you've made it your mission you've made it your practice to help them come back out into connection and community and find their way back Agam, is it okay that I use your first name or would you like to be? Yeah, absolutely. Got you. Okay, we'll be, we'll be as informal here with each other. Um, I will tell you, of course, uh, while I'm a gay man, I'm very interested in men's mental health. And I would say across our nation and probably across the universe, men are less apt to access mental health support and be a part of things. And you know, we recently found out that in our data of our YouTube version of this podcast, it was like 70% of the people watching were men. And we both just kind of our mouths dropped. We were like, well, this is fascinating. Like we're kind of, you know, and we're only a year into this. So we're kind of figuring it out. But I appreciate your interest. And I want to know, number one, you know, kind of about your interest in working with, with men's mental health, but specifically related to the loneliness factor, related to video games, related to porn um, and the differentiation. I think it might be really helpful to differentiate between what we consider addiction and what we consider regular use. Yeah, absolutely. And I think that's a, such a, a varied question too. So the difference between addiction and abuse is that I can have a glass of wine with my spouse on a Friday night versus I wake up on a Tuesday eve Tuesday morning because I have such a bad hangover and I have to drink to get rid of this hangover. So the difference is the functionality, right? Anyone, any person, any man, any woman can enjoy video games, porn, all those things and in a healthy way. But then when it starts impairing with our work, our school, our personal lives, our relationships, our financials, we start seeking it out despite knowing that we shouldn't. We spend way too much money on it even though we've, we know consciously that we shouldn't all of that starts impacting our functionality. We start having withdrawals about it when we uh, don't engage in it, right? Our tolerance to those things to like get the same level of enjoyment increases 
So all of those things combined, like that's what really separates the addiction piece from just normal, normal usage. Wow. I appreciate you differentiating that way. Agam, one of the things that I always tell people when they come in, when any of my patients might come in and ask, like, do I have a problem? Do I have an addiction? Do I need to get uh, further support around this issue? I always talk about functionality. I always say, like, how does it have a consequence in your life? How does it impact your functioning? And the, the word consequence comes up to me a lot uh, in my head as I think about this, because I really think that's what you're talking about. Like if your relationships, if your job, if your financial stability, if your housing, you know, all the ways that we know addiction can impact people negatively, it's a really good differentiation. I love that you also said, you know, you can have a drink with your friends on a Friday night and it's totally fine. Even, you know, I tell clients even if you want a glass of wine during dinner, it's really not an issue as long as it does not affect sleep and functioning the next day. I mean, one a day is not, in my opinion, an issue. But it all goes back to like everybody is a different person too. And everybody's mm -hmm. going to respond to these things differently. Yeah, I'll give you all a, a good story where like this is one of the patients that I had. So when I was a third year medical student, we had this secret VIP patient. And this was a patient that only the attending physician was able to see. None of the mm -hmm. residents or the uh medical students were able to see which is not normal like usually the team sees the whole page the team the team sees every patient yeah. and so you know of course word gets around and everyone's like what's happening what's going on like why is this why is this such a super secret vip patient <laughs> turns out that the the patient was actually a physician at the hospital mm -hmm. and the yeah. patient was there for alcohol cirrhosis Okay. Which is next level in addiction, right? When it's like eating away at your liver. He was on the transplant list and had been kicked off the liver transplant list because he relapsed into drinking. Oh, that's painful. And so this was a, a physician who was on the outside functioning very well. Like he was employed by the same hospital and like practicing medicine for 20 or so years but yet like that's where the addiction piece comes in because his health was suffering that's the functionality that was being affected and even after being on the transplant list he got kicked off of it because of that addiction right. talk about a consequence right? so, like that that is a consequence yeah i mean i feel like you did not come to this work and this passion by chance or by coincidence and i would love if you could tell us a little bit about your own personal story of how you ended up wanting to specialize in these issues yeah absolutely so i remember when i was in high school i had the same routine every single day where i would come home from school grab a plate of oreo cookies not just like one or two either a plate or like the entire box where you can peel back the uh like the the, the top layer the resealable down, package yes. the resealable package yeah take it downstairs to the basement by the way the golden oreos are much better than the uh normal oreo that will fight anyone who says otherwise what? 
Aren't, aren't golden Oreos just like vanilla? <laughs> That's an endorsement for sure. I'm not sure. I might, I might want to challenge that. We'll do a taste off later. <laughs> but so I would take these Oreos down to the basement, shut the door, right? Make sure all the blinds were down. We had this old big screen TV. It's like one of those fat ones, the ones that take up like a huge amount of space. Oh, yeah, yeah. Like yeah. Yes, I know you guys will remember this oh, uh, very, sure. very well. I'm too young. <laughs> I was going to say, you feel like you're I'm... too young to have had one of those, but All I right. believe you. <laughs> Moving on. Yeah. So I had this TV, right? And so I would just game like every day after school and would do this till like dinner or until my my dad came home, which I, you know, I had to stop. Okay, my dad's here. We're going to have dinner. But then afterward, would either go downstairs and keep gaming or go upstairs to my room where I had my computer and then just shut the door and game on my computer. Mm -hmm. And so this happened for like years. And like I would remember I would be sitting in class literally last period, not even being able to focus on the class because I'm just like thinking about like as soon as I can go home and uh, in game. Fast forward to senior year where there was this girl who I wanted to ask out to prom. But I, I was too scared to ask her. Aww. I had no like social experience. I was barely kind of doing anything. I was too scared to ask her. And then some other guy asked her. <gasps> and she said yes. And so I remember being, I went to prom. I went by myself to prom in an oversized suit and a tie that I just learned how to tie like like that hour before on YouTube and sitting there on like the chair watching this girl that I liked dancing with this other guy yeah and in my head it just like everything just like came together at that moment and I just remember thinking dang like that could have been me and so going into college, that's when I made that like decision in my mind. I'm like, I can't keep living like this. This is not going to lead to like the life that I want. And then slowly started to change my habits, learning about CBT, getting social, uh, you know, starting to learn about fitness and all of those things. And then continuing on from there like a full life makeover. Like you hit some sort of point where you just couldn't live like that anymore. I mean, a lot of people would probably just spiral into a really dark depression and not feel like this is it. Agam, I'm curious too. You know, I think the whole dynamic where you realized when you saw her dancing with someone else that you had lost an opportunity. And though, and so by the time you got to college and when you started taking a look at this, you really made that connection between, I have to stop doing some of this. Did it stop? Thankfully, what was very helpful, and I think this is really a lesson in addiction psychiatry as well, is that the best thing about going to college is that it was an environment change. Mm. Yeah. Right? So we've done, they've done studies where like there was in, in Vietnam, right? In the 60s, a lot of the soldiers were addicted to heroin. And so there was a thought that when those soldiers came back, that they would still continue to be addicted to heroin. Turns out that like over 90% of them 
literally like stopped using once they came back to the States. Wow. Why was that, right? It's the access. It's the environment. Yet we know that in rehab centers here, someone who might go in addicted to a substance might come out, but then they go back to the rehab center like six months, three months, or whatever later because they're back in that same environment, right? The same family pressure, the same social environment, the same, uh, like, let's say they're in a crappy living situation, group home, or whatever it is, right? They still have the same access, like nothing has really changed. And willpower is only like a small part of behavior change. Hmm. So to answer your question, right, Doug, going into college, like I didn't take any of my gaming stuff with me. Yeah. And I was exposed to all of this new stimulus, new environment, new people, all these new social opportunities, living in the dorms, constantly having access to like all this um, college life 24 seven, which made it very, very easy to start focusing on other things. You know, what's fascinating about that? I think two things, you know, I grew up in rural Minnesota and, you know, there weren't a lot of stimulations. There weren't a lot of things to go to. You had to drive 30 miles to get to a movie theater that had multiple options or, or restaurants that gave some diversity of, of food options. Um, but I'm very struck by something. So whenever I work with people who appeared to be, whether it's sex or shopping or food or alcohol or other substances, I always use the halt method in my head. The hunger, anger, lonely, tired, right? And I think about your circumstance related to that. You're really not that lonely if you're living in a dorm where there's always people around, where there's always opportunities available to kids on a college campus. But it really makes me aware of the environment that we grow up in has such a big impact on what it is that we have available to us to provide that stimulation. Um, And, you know, Oreos. That's the other key piece to your story. Um, But, you know, that's really fascinating to me that you just did not bring your gaming stuff. And so it did not become something that you had available to you and you automatically found some alternative behaviors. The heroin piece is fascinating, too, right, from these Vietnam vets, Um, just simply from the perspective of what, what a lot of us think. Like we assume there's an organic and physical addiction, which might be much more psychological in a lot of these circumstances and social. Mm hmm. So I'm coming from a very different place as like, you know, I'm 46, didn't have brothers. Nobody was playing video games at my house. I have academic parents, like immigrants. They just like, this was not my world. And now I have two teenage boys who are, you know, they're obsessed. They're loving the gaming. And from where I stand, because I don't understand it, I have such mixed feelings about it all that like a part of me feels like, I mean, this whole thing that, you know, we pulled together was like, oh, gaming and the sadness and the loneliness. And it's really like, you must be the lowest of the low if you found yourself sucked into this miserable dark world with Oreos and under the blankets and no sun, whatever that is. But then also, I mean, what I'm hearing from the bedrooms of my boys is like so much joy. They're connecting with their friends. Our, my boys, who could not be more different, have something in common. They are so excited to connect with their friends online. But then that's what feels confusing, especially it's like we're talking about the loneliness but 
it doesn't sound like gaming is a lonely business. It sounds like mm-hmm. maybe if your life is 80% online and 20% in the real world, maybe you're finding you're much less competent out in the world. You're having much less success. You're more socially anxious. But you're like, you've got this persona, this avatar, you're super con- Like, I don't. I don't know. I don't even know what I'm talking about, really, because I've, <laughs> I've never even played a video game in my life except for Tetris. Oh, I'm and it was in- myself. It was interesting. Well, and I started out with Pong way back in the whatever, <laughs> eight, uh, 70s. You know, Agam, one of the things that I'm really struck by, and you referenced this already, was the pandemic, right? Mm. Like the fact that we were all isolated, the fact that we were not engaging, kids were not going to school, they were not getting that sort of loneliness taken care of. They weren't playing sports, especially contact sports. It was a very complicated time. And I think the option, you know, going back again, I joke about Pong back in the 70s, um, you know, one one screen of, you know, you go up and down um, to what we have now. Like I watch my kids engage with other people and there are communities. Um, and I want to maybe jump, I guess, to this virtual relationship piece. Mm. Do you think that those virtual relationships address that loneliness effectively? Yeah, I think both of you guys raised such good points, and like they, we could talk an hour about all of that or right? more. From how to yep. how to parent uh, kids who are gaming, right? How to understand where they're coming from, um, understanding the like the social relationships that they do have, right? Understanding what the games mean to the kids and like what they do for them, right? But then to really kind of answer your your question, Doug. So that's something that we the way that the so there's two types of relationships that can form in gaming. So one is like a social relationship where you are a person and you are gaming with other people through a channel, typically Discord, where you get together and you do voice chatting, right? So just like in a football team, a football team has camaraderie, a person, a player has camaraderie with their teammates because they have a shared mission together, right? We are going to train we're going to work and we are going to try to beat the other team right so like that brings that team together in gaming it's like yeah me and my friends we are going to team up together we are going to communicate we are going to strategize to try to defeat this other team the shooter team that's fighting against us or we're going to team up to beat this mission to beat this monster to beat this boss Okay, we're going to get together to train a couple of days a week so we can improve our skills, right? So you can see how that is, it's such an attractive prospect mm-hmm. for a kid, especially if like these contact sports that are so traditional, like, you know, like that's not the traditional avenue for them. Like I was a five foot six Indian guy. I'm not playing football. Like uh, I'm, I don't have that delusion, right? So like I would fa- probably need some other kind of, um, avenue where I feel that kind of community and spirit, right? And so that's the community aspect of it. But then you also have what are called parasocial relationships. And so that's where you have one streamer and you have all of these people who watch that streamer and you communicate with the streamer through chat. Yeah. So like I could be gaming and speaking and communicating, right? And I'm talking to the audience that I'm talking to the chat. So you may have you may have heard of things like, oh chat, say this. Chat, what do you think about this? 
chat like should i fight this monster or not and then the chat is responding right so they the chat people feel engaged uh with the streamer over time a relationship develops where you feel like you get to know the streamer right the streamer might talk about their lives their families their girlfriends or boyfriends their struggles right as they're gaming over the course of time and so you feel the 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 viewer feels like they get to know that streamer but, but it's the streamer not reciprocal know, oh, right the streamer doesn't know anything about the viewer it's just a but chat the streamer just, can contact i mean they can be in contact with the viewers and they can respond to the questions coming in right yes yes in the live chat yeah but it's it's like it's i don't see like it's not like facetime or anything like it's right. literally just like a chat okay like it, you know it might be like camera guy 364 says right. oh i love this right and so it's a very one-sided relationship it's like a yeah. one-to-many kind of relationship right the issue is is that when that person like that streamer that chatter really mm -hmm. identifies with the streamer but the streamer doesn't really know at all about the chatter so like you said it's very it's very one-sided and then over time if that chatters relationship if all the relationships become these parasocial relationships because they watch multiple streamers right mm. their entire lives might just become dedicated to just watching streamers their friday saturday sunday nights are spent just watching streamers and that's when you can really kind of get into the dark side of it because it's very lonely nobody knows you sees you cares about you but you're connected to all of these other people I wish I could articulate this better. I want to go back, uh, Agam, to one thing you said about, you know, what what happens in these team games, right? Uh, one of the things I've been very struck by, and it almost feels emotional when I watch my older daughter in particular play, is that her friends will come and rescue her if she dies, or, you know, she'll rescue them if they die. So there's this bonding that happens with like, come get me, I died, right? And I, I remember like they were talking and I was like, this is crazy making, but it like resembles a real world in a virtual way. And I, it's another way of feeling important or another feel of weighing, of feeling cared for in some ways, right? Um, I gotta tell you, Agam, one of the hugest issues I always talk to my kids about is how do you know who these people are? How do you know how old they are? You know, my 21 year old in particular, I'm like, okay, who's paying you? Is it some person who is a perpetrator? Is it somebody who, might have but you know there's no way of regulating this right or is there right no i think with the scale of the internet it's so expansive right regulation yeah. becomes uh super super difficult and that's the that's the difference though like when you're communicating with the person when you're actually having a relationship versus like that parasocial relationship where yeah. it's like the one two many so she, like your daughter's getting paid by these people who are viewing her, right? And so it's up to her to be careful about how much information she discloses, how much of her personal identity uh, she discloses, right? Um, so that way she makes sure that she stays protected while she's engaging in this activity. So you kind of went somewhere at the end i wanted to know you know what do you recommend parents do or what do you recommend kids do to manage some of that anxiety but you said something really beautiful there and i think very pointed about 
decide how much disclosure to make. You know, even Tali and I on this podcast, we've had to decide, like, we are clinicians, we have patients who know very little about us. This podcast has opened up the world a little bit to, you know, people get to know us a little bit differently. And I've been anxious about it from the beginning because I've spent 28 years not sharing parts of my life. And now I have clients who can watch and learn a great deal about what I did over the weekend, right? Um, Or even some of my social and sexual activity. Um, and so it's been really interesting, you know, how this internet process, even podcasts, et cetera, become a means by which people connect, mm-hmm. which I think is great overall. Like, I think, you know, there's a lot of, there was some data coming out of, I believe it was uh, Yale, it might've been Harvard as well. I, I don't know which, uh, which of those two schools, but they talked a lot about the impact of social media on mood and, and the need to catch up and the need to be something. And I get curious about that related to the video gaming world as well. Like if you're always losing or if you're not as good as somebody else, does it also perpetuate low self-esteem? What are your thoughts? I mean, of course, right? It's yeah. just like engaging in any kind of activity, whether I engage yeah. in real life sport, like football, basketball, if I do arts and crafts, like, yeah. or I do drama acting, there's always going to be people who are better there's always going to be that comp- competition. There's always going to be that comparison. And so it's just that what makes the gaming more dangerous is how easy it is to access, like the low barrier of entry, right? Mm-hmm. So what makes addiction different things, different addictiveness is one, how easy it is to access, how quickly the you get the, the dopamine spike, like the high, and how much you can kind of reinforce that uh the behavior right and so the thing with with gaming is that it's so like i love gaming but it's it's it becomes so easy to get sucked into whereas like other activities it's not even close to like the level of ease that it takes uh to get sucked into and so that's where that that mindfulness really does come in where you're setting up you're knowing how much you're playing, you have it regulated, you have it like segmented into a part of your life, right? Mm-hmm. And um, and it, it is hard. It's, it's hard for parents too, especially because when a kid is developing, a teenager is developing, their frontal lobes aren't fully mature yet. So they're not able to do a lot of the self-regulation, which is why the the parents come in. But then, you know, if parents come in too strong, then without understanding what that the game is doing to the child like why they identify with it so much then of course you create an animosity between your relationship with the kid right you push that relationship away you might destroy that relationship without really understanding okay like how can we work together to you know make it a fruitful activity for the both of us I I also, I mean, that really makes me think that, I mean, you're talking about parents regulating the kids, but most adults are also not able to regulate their own screen use. We're all a little bit addicted. You have to have like amazing boundaries around this. And most of us don't. And so it's a little bit, you know, hypocritical of us to always be figuring out that, that they can be regulating their own when we don't know how to do that. I mean, it's although it's interesting, I will say I don't, I don't feel addicted. Um, I'm not on I'm not on Facebook. Um, I actually forgot what it was called. Um, Facebook or Twitter. Um, I got an Instagram just for this podcast because uh, a previous person we were working with 
Although, I know what you're going to say. Uh, <laughs> I know, I'm just thinking it. I'm just thinking I it. I do, however, based on my social life as a single gay man, yes, um, I periodically <laughs> will check what goes off on a regular basis just while I'm very in the studio. rarely and per periodically. Part, partly to make you laugh. Um, mm -hmm. But, you know, there's a part of this that I don't feel addicted to my phone, except that it is the way that we connect with people. And it is amazing to me, you know, I'll be in with patients all day. I do eight to 10 patients a day, which I know 10 is too much for uh, most people. So I don't want anyone to freak out, but I love being in that zone. So when I get done and I see like 25 messages, I'm like, I can't even think about it. Like I have no interest in reading them. I don't want to look at my phone. Um, if it's my kids, which is my priority um, or a dear friend who might need to talk, I absolutely make it a priority. I don't feel addicted though. I wonder if that is my age. Like I did not grow up with a phone. I'm actually irritated especially because I talk to people every hour. I'm really irritated by it. Mm. So I see you, I see you nodding a bit. Mm. What are you thinking? Yeah. So what I was thinking is that this is such a cycle that like every generation goes through. And I think so, so. What, yeah, because what's really funny is that like now I'm starting to go through it. I just turned 30 and like, I see these young Gen Zers, like, yeah. like, I don't know what apps they're using now. And like, <laughs> Like what kind of like I love technology? Power like, like, now. I'm like, yeah. oh, these kids nowadays. Adam, my older is 34, and I swear she's feeling that way. Like I don't know what that is. Like I'm I like, used to be the young one. Right. So, I'm so yeah. curious. Like so, if we move on to the part where it's like, okay, there are people that need to sort of like wake up and see that they have a problem that it is out of control it's not just fun and joyful and adaptive but they've gotten to a place where they're not feeling good about their use of whatever it is that they're addicted to if it's the gaming if it's the porn and they're feeling kind of stuck in the depression and the loneliness i mean how do you even begin with them? And I guess even before that question, do they even know that they have a problem? Or is it their their lover, their spouse, their parent, their whatever that's like, oh my God, you have to go see this guy, see, save him. <laughs> yeah, I think you, you bring up a lot of good points, Talia. Do you wanna know, so I get a lot of consult calls, right? Mm -hmm. And you wanna know, Who's the one who's doing most of the console calls? Dying to know. The moms. The moms. Of course. Like 90% of the time, it's the moms reaching out. I really wanted to be wrong, but I was like, ugh, <laughs> I already know the answer. Yeah. And so this is this really kind of ties into like fundamental addiction uh, theory, right? Until someone experiences enough pain to want to move in a different direction yeah they're never going to be able to do that and so i'll, I'll give you a, a good story so when i was also in in medical school i had a like a mid-60s patient who had come in for his like third heart attack and the cardiologist had told him hey like you gotta quit smoking the last the, the next one might kill you Right. And so he'd been told that for right. And he had three heart attacks. So he'd already kind of been through this. He's wow. like, yeah, yeah, whatever. Yeah. And so I remember just chatting with this guy. And as, as med students, we have a little bit more time to interact with the patients than, let's say, like the attending level physician. Mm. And so 
we were just chatting and he was telling me about his life and he he mentioned that his uh granddaughter was getting married in uh like a couple months and so i asked him like are you getting, do you think you'll be able to make that and he's like yeah of course i'll make it mm. and then he starts thinking and then he's like am i going to be able to make that oh yeah so that reality like that emotional pain really like that's when it all kind of crystallized and like hit him right there right it was no longer theoretical it was an actual event that he was dying to make and he was worried he wasn't going to make it right and so having that that pain right that feeling we followed up with him next next month in the clinic quit smoking Wow. Quit cold turkey, the two packs of oh. cigarettes. Yeah. When he hadn't been able to quit for years and years and years on end. We we know with like people with weight loss, right? Like they try for years and years and years to lose weight. And then all of a sudden, oh, my wedding's coming up in like four months. Yeah. Suddenly they're able to lose the weight. It takes the right, right kind of motivation. Like you have to figure out what that pain point is and what they want badly enough. And it goes to consequence. It goes to what it is that people, and if they can imagine that consequence of not going to the event or not looking good at their wedding. But here's it's a powerful what's scary, piece. you guys, because I own a couple of teenage boys. Their headlights only go out this far. Nobody's thinking about like, what is this going to do to my future or my relationships or my well-being, my health. I need exercise and vitamin D. So, of course, it's the moms. Basically, what I hear you saying, Agam, is listen to your mother, right? That's what he said. No. Always listen to <laughs> your mother. I did not quote. hear that, I'm quoting by the way. <laughs> I think that's what we call selective hearing. Ah! That's like Doug accuses me of that. Album, that will be the quote from the, the entire podcast episode. I was really curious about the level 100. Like, I feel like you've created your, um, the way that you treat people is in this very interesting in your TikToks. It's like everything pulls in gaming into mental health and healing. Like, how did you come up with that? Tell us a little bit about what you do. Yeah. So when I was going through my uh, psychiatry residency, right, I had this one patient. And so this was a 20-year-old guy. And around age 16 or 17, he had dropped out of high school. He never got his driver's license. And so what he was doing was he was living in his mother's or his parents' attic, staying up till like 5 a.m., and then waking up around like noon or something. He had a part-time job at the dollar store, but like that was it, and really was unable to meet, and he was being seen for depression, anxiety, ADHD in our clinic, but like really was kind of what we classify as like a failure to launch where yeah. really just hadn't gotten up anywhere past like the mid high school age, right? Like 
and was kind of continuing down this path. And so he would express all these things about, yeah, I want to go to college, like, but I can't focus and study. And I want to be able to get a driver's license, but, you know, I don't think I can handle it. And so as we're like working through with this, with this guy, right? Like I remember being, we literally had sessions where I would coach, we would coach him on how to make a call to the DMV to ask about his license renewal and to sign up for like the process. So like we like literally would role play. Adulting lessons. Yeah. Adulting lessons. Right. And so eventually like he got better. He, uh, you know, signed up to apply for his driver's license. He started studying to, uh, actually get his GED so he could get into college. Right. So started making some progress. But then I, I was reflecting and I was like, why do I feel so compelled to help this guy more than the other patients that I have? Like more personal help, like more in-depth kind of help. Yeah. And it's because like, like I saw myself in him and I was yeah. like, I could have gone down this path. And if I know that I could have gone this path, he went down this path. There's a lot of other guys like him who are going down this path. And I was like, man, like, I want to, like, these are the guys that I want to help. Like, I feel like I have the personal experience and, of course, not professional experience to be able to help these guys and to really understand them and understand where they came from. And it's not to say I don't treat other people and, like, don't help them. Like, that's, that's not the case at all. But it's like the 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 work that we find that I was finding most meaningful in that time was helping guys like that. And then kind of just started making content, then started incorporating some of the gaming stuff into it, and then started thinking about my own private practice. And I was like, well, if I'm going to commit to this, then why not commit to it fully and make it more like a life mission rather than just like a hobby? Yeah. And then it kind of just snowballed from there. Agam, I'm wondering if you could tell us sort of like if we move to like the tools and the tips and the tricks, there are two. Like, I'm wondering, is there advice that you might give not to the, you know, the people that are just healthy and adaptive and living their best lives and still have a really great social life, all the things, but for the caregivers or the partners or the, you know, the lovers, the children or the parents, any advice you would give them if they're concerned that there is a loved one that is really deeply sucked into another world in an unhealthy way? Yeah, absolutely. So the fundamental thing, right, what I tell parents a lot is we we know in therapy, right, we know that in every the evidence for like different therapies like CBT, psychodynamic, interpersonal, in regards to patient outcomes is pretty similar. Yeah. And we know the number one thing that determines a successful outcome from a not successful outcome is a therapeutic alliance. That's what really correlates well with the change in the client. That's beautiful. Mm -hmm. So same thing in the um, parent-child relationship, right? So the, the first step is always coming at it with understanding and empathy, trying to understand, okay, 
Like, what does the gaming mean to my child? Like, what is it doing for them? Trying to understand their experience. Actually trying to, like, understand what game they're playing, why it's so important to them. Even trying to just, like, learn about the game. And, or even trying to play it with them. Right? Just to build that alliance. And then once that alliance is built, that's when, you know, the the person can starts becoming open to... Mm different feedback like hey may- maybe we're playing too much or did you need to yell at this person or mm. how do you think like your school is impacting here do you think your 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 dating life it might be struggling um from all this and because they know that you are have that open trusting relationship with them where they can come to you with without feeling judged without feeling uh uh like chided for right like that's when that person becomes the most receptive to change. So just like we have that therapeutic alliance in therapy, yeah. same thing applies to uh, caregivers as well. That's really beautiful. I'm even generalizing that to like partnership and porn and just picturing the same conversation all the way through of instead of it being something that someone is feeling really ashamed of or they're hiding it, if they feel like you are trying to understand from a place of love and compassion and empathy, like, tell me what it is about this. What are the needs that it's fulfilling for you? And then even maybe asking to become more of a part of it so that there could be some partnership and some regulation around it. You know, Agam, one of the things that you talked about earlier was this kind of generational change and the cycles that we go through. I think, you know, even at 30, when you talk about like, what the hell are these Gen Zers doing? Um, you know, I think it's important for people who are not 30, such as myself, to recognize that it's it's good to be curious. It's good to be trying to sort through, like, what is this for my child who's 21 that I didn't have, that I don't understand? You know, and I ask a lot of questions, and fortunately, I feel like I do have an alliance with both of my kids that they feel trusting mm-hmm. to a- answer me, and they know that I'm curious. I think also being a therapist, you know, my kids know I am curious. I'm looking at this as a learning experience as well. But if I come right. off as critical, if we come off as critical, it's not going to work well. Or we start, and I'm I'm not someone who's big into, like, uh, the, the consequences being punitive. I think kids need their phone to feel connected sometimes and safe. So I don't know. There's all kinds of debates about this. Yeah. Um, one, one thing I wanted to comment on that just struck me when you mentioned. Yeah. Is so when we talk about generational trauma, right? We know that that's something that passes yeah. down from generation to generation, yep. generation. The way that the parents were treated is the way that they treat their kids, and then so forth, so forth. And so what can also really help parents is if you think the way that I address these situations or how my kids are going to address them with their grandchildren. That is exactly right. With your grandchildren. Until we break that cycle, you know, absolutely. So you you get to be a very pivotal role in trying to break that. Where now, like, if you're you're saying, like, you know, you built that alliance with your daughters, you're able to talk to them about it. It can probably further you to, or motivate you to continue that behavior because you know that like that's how your daughters will do it with their children it's incredible it's just beautiful yeah i'm i'm wondering if you could even speak to if you could give some advice to all of us that are trying to make sure that our vices 
are healthy and they don't spiral into addiction. Is there anything that you can say about like, how do we make sure that we're regulating the, them for ourselves a certain way? Yeah, no, that, that's a really good question. So just like with anything that we engage in, right? I think the, the first step is, is, is always mindfulness, which is a skill. Like mm -hmm. it's a skill, right? Having the self-awareness to know exactly what behaviors you're doing and like where they're leading to, right? Mindfulness is a skill that can be developed. I mean, through meditation, even through self-analyses, just being mindful, understanding of your own thought processes, how that leads to behaviors. So like having the having just mindfulness, which is just awareness, right? Yeah. And then second, being able to create boundaries, create the environment to uh, facilitate like the life that we want to live. Mm. For example, right? If I know that I'm trying to lose weight, one of the best strategies is to not even have junk food at the house. Oreos. Yep. Except, to, for yeah, golden just, Oreos. except the golden ones. Yeah. Except but for like, those. That's exactly right. But, but like just to not even buy it. Yep. yep. That way you, you don't engage in willpower every time you have a sugar craving because you look around the cabinet and there's only like almonds and cashews. There's no Oreos around. So you're like, oh, well, I guess this is all I can eat. Right. <laughs> So what you're doing is you're facilitating that environment change to where it's um, it helps you lead towards your goals, right? And so that's important uh, too. And like that's something that you do have control over that's because great. what I try to stress to clients is that willpower is a finite resource. Like you only have X amount of it and it gets varied. It varies day by day. It varies if we've had enough sleep, if we're sick, if we feel crappy if we're stressed right so by controlling all the other things that we can that makes it as easy for us to make sure that like whatever our vices are they don't slip into problems and they don't slip into addictions and then the mindfulness ties in where when you see that things are slipping right which happens that's when you can self-correct and be like oh i see this is happening let me self-correct and go back Love. And I love that you're saying like, you can't really just rely on willpower because it like fluctuates with every shadow and passing moment. I, I, I would add one more piece. And that's when you find that slipping happening, or you start to realize there's a consequence to your behavior that you're not comfortable with. I encourage people who do not feel like they can figure it out on their own to ask for help. Mm -hmm. You know, let somebody know in your life, I need help figuring this out reach out to a mental health support such as psychiatry or psych psychotherapy um, and, and really ask for help when you just can't do it on your own. I think that's the importance of us being a resource. Yeah, for sure. And that's why I feel so good about like, I feel like this podcast is shining a light on all sorts of niche specialties and resources. And just for people that don't otherwise have access yeah. to this information, people who didn't even know that this is something that people are talking about. There are specialists. There are people out there that know all about this, that you are so not alone.
Um, well, and there's a joke about Minnesota. I'm sorry oh, to interrupt. There's a joke about Minnesota being the land of 10,000 treatment centers because oh, yeah. Hazelden I mean, is yeah. based here. Um, so we have like this cluster of, of treatment centers for addiction. I'm sorry to interrupt. I was that's that's where Mayo that. Clinic is, right? Like Minnesota. That is correct. Yes. Yeah. Rochester, just about an hour away. Yeah. And don't we have like Hazelton? Hazelton, yeah. Hazelton and Hazelden. Um, Hazelden. What I was going to actually just say is. Thank you so much for coming in and talking to us and sharing your incredible knowledge with all of our listeners. And I would just want to make sure um, that people know how they can find you. Right. What like plug anything that you're interested in that you're working on? Like, how can people find you and work with you? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And thank you again for the opportunity to to be here. I hope your listeners got a lot out of it. I'm uh, certain. What, did. Yeah, what I uh, the philosophy that I always want to leave people with is that just like in gaming, you we have different levels, you have different stats, and as you boost up your levels, you boost up your stats. That lets you handle stronger enemies, stronger bosses, handle higher level gear, right? Wield stronger swords, stronger weapons and be able to progress in that game. Real life works the exact same way. Love so that. as you build up that real life, those like, like I say your fitness skills, your social skills, your empathy skills, your mindfulness skills, right? Your job negotiation skills, your podcasting skills. As you build those things up, those are stats and you're building them up by getting experience, just like in a game. And that lets you handle higher and higher level challenges that you may not have been able to at like level five, but now at level 25, you can handle that. So that's the overall kind of system behind like the level 100 method that I try to teach where like we all try to get to level 100 in our lives. Yeah. So if you're someone who is struggling with depression, anxiety, bipolar, um, PTSD, gaming addiction, you feel like you really resonate with the stuff that we um, talked about today, then uh, yeah, feel free to reach out, book a free console call at my website, www.agamduanmd.com. And I'm you know, looking forward to talking about you and hearing about uh, you know what you're going through. Thank you so much uh, again for being with us. Friends, we hope so much that you got as much value out of Dr. Agam's episode as we did. And <clears throat> thank you so much for tuning in. We're always so grateful for your support. And don't forget, if you liked it, like, subscribe, wherever you listen to your podcast and share with friends, family, enemies. We don't care. Just share it. Frenemies. <laughs> And, you know, it's interesting because, of course, Agam's presentation on addiction and gaming and porn kind of applies to everybody. But if you have any further questions about those or other issues, go to we'renotfine.com, submit your questions. You could do it anonymously. You can name us who you are. We'll put your name on the air if uh, you'd like so we can do all of that. But we'renotfine.com, submit your questions there. We're open to anything and everything. That's right. And we love it. We welcome it. And find us on Insta, Dr. Talia Jackson. Douglas L. Jensen with an E-N, and we're not fine. That's it. We're amazing. And we're on YouTube. So you can see, I mean, we dress really cute for you. You guys oh. should actually see us in person. You're cuter than I am. Oh. <laughs> <laughs>
I know. Ah! <laughs> and remember, we're not fine. But at least you're not the rejected Oreos that everyone's now choosing golden. Oh, wah, wah. You know what I mean. At saying. least you're not the chocolate Oreos that Agam <laughs> rejected in favor of the blonde Oreos. My gosh, there are blonde. I was thinking golden is vanilla. We love you. See you next time.